you have a Bible, could you take it and turn to John chapter 17? John 17, and we'll be in verses 20 to 26 today. Uh, just a note of thanks to Trevor and Carolyn for taking the time to reach out to the Croys and keep them on our minds and advocate for them so that we can be praying for them. I look forward to doing that during our potluck time. Our text, as I said, is John 17, 20 to 26, the last part of what is often called Jesus's high priestly prayer. Um, in his teaching from John 13 to 16, what we call the upper room discourse, we've noted that Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his approaching departure, his return to the Father. And he's explaining to them and to us how we are to follow him when he is absent from us, when he's no longer physically present here. Over and over again, he's told his fearful and his confused and his worried disciples to not let their hearts be troubled. He's called them to love one another. He's explained that it's it's actually good for him to leave so that the Holy Spirit can come and, and be with them at all times and in all places. He's encouraged them that they're going to see him again, that he is in fact going to the Father to prepare a place for them so that they can come and be with him always. And he's made it clear that until their return, they need to abide in him so that they can bear fruit, everlasting fruit. And having said all these things and more, chapter 17 we saw last week opens by telling us that Jesus lifted his eyes to heaven and prayed to his Father. He lifts his eyes to heaven and prays to the Father even as the, the cross overshadows him more and more, draws closer and closer. In verses 1 through 5, we saw that he began to request his requests first for himself, praying for his glorification. In that request, he was looking forward to his ascension and the restoration of his full glory that he, that he had when he was with the Father and that would be coming back to him as he returned to the Father. But he also was looking to the glorification that would come through his humiliation on the cross. Remember, that sacrificial act of love and salvation was the reason that the Father had sent him into the world. And it was the culmination of that redemptive plan that they had together established before the world was ever made that would come about when he was crucified. His faithfulness all the way to the point of death would lead to his glorification. And it was this glorification of Jesus through his crucifixion that would bring about eternal life for everyone who trusted in him. He would purchase not simply life that would never end, but he would also open up the way for those who trusted in Christ to experience what all humanity has been made for, namely the joy and the wonder of knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. Remember, this is eternal life, that, you would, that they would know me, and they would know God, and they would know Jesus Christ. And having prayed for his glorification, we then saw that Jesus starts to pray for his disciples in verses 6 to 19. He prayed for these ones that the Father had chosen out of the world and given into the protection of the Son so that he might redeem them and, and make them his own. Those who, unlike the Pharisees, had received the word of Christ and believed that Jesus truly was sent from God. He prayed in four ways, you remember. He prayed for their protection from the world and from the devil because he was returning to the Father. He prayed for the fullness of their joy 
found as they would trusted in Christ and walked in his ways. He prayed for their holiness, for their sanctification that was made possible through the truth of the gospel and that would display the reality of the gospel in the world as they lived holy lives and declared the beauty and the righteousness of God. And he prayed for their unity, that they would be one even as he and the Father are one. And it's that prayer, it's that prayer for unity that Jesus takes up again and that dominates the verses describing how Jesus prays for the church in the ages after the disciples, for us. We find that what Jesus prays for in the first part of his prayer, namely the son's glorification and the disciples' protection and joy and unity and holiness, all of this serves to accomplish the birth of the church. All of this brings about the establishment of this fellowship of those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who would believe in Jesus and find life in him. And as Jesus looks to the future, this future of a, of a, of a fellowship full of diversity but founded in him, he asks the Father to make all who trust in him one. Jesus asks the Father to make us, the church, one. And in that he says this to us, pray, pray for, the, pray for and pursue the supernatural unity that declares the mission and love of God. That's how we'll summarize verses 20 to 26 of chapter 17. It's a call to pray like Jesus, but also to pursue what's on his heart. Pray for and pursue the supernatural unity that declares the mission and the love of God. Pray for and pursue the supernatural unity that declares the mission and love of God. Let's look at this prayer of Christ beginning in John 17, verse 20. This is what he says. I do not ask for these only, speaking of the disciples, the 11 who were there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The wonder and maybe the surprise of this prayer for the unity of the future church is made clear in light of the present situation. Remember what's going on here. Remember what's happening, because Jesus is speaking about unity in the midst of a situation where Judas has already left to betray him. He's speaking about unity in the midst of a situation where 
Peter will certainly deny him and all of the disciples are going to scatter and leave. He's speaking about the furtherance of this mission that he's called them to based on unity when in moments, few hours away, he's going to be crucified like a criminal and laid in a tomb. It doesn't look like there's going to be a lot of unity. It doesn't look like things are going to be continuing. And yet, Jesus, who prays to the Father in verse 4 as if his sacrificial death and triumphal resurrection have already happened, now looks to Pentecost. He looks even beyond Pentecost, being just as confident that the kingdom of God would not die when he died. The disciples didn't know that their small and fearful number would soon turn the world upside down, as the book of Acts says it. They didn't know that that was going to happen. They didn't know that the Christian faith would grow and spread to nearly every corner of the globe. But Jesus did. Jesus knew what was going to happen. And Jesus knew that this was just the beginning. And if this movement of God's gospel was going to continue, then a supernatural unity would be necessary. And when we need something supernatural, we pray. We pray to God because he's the one that gives us. And so, and so Jesus prays. And if he prays in this way, then we too should pray in this way. We need to pray for, and not just pray for, but also pursue the supernatural unity that declares the mission and love of God. On the surface, the call to unity may sound a little simple, but we, we all know the real, that, that real unity, true harmony, is extremely difficult to find. I just finished listening to the audiobook The Boys in the Boat by Daniel James Brown, which has also been made into a movie. Some of you have read that book, I know, and some of you have even seen the movie. It tells the story of the 1936 eight-man Olympic rowing team that came from the University of Washington. And we could spend a lot of time uh, talking about lessons about unity from that, that book. But one thing that it highlights, at least that stuck out to me, was the, the rarity of unity and, and the beauty that is seen when, when unity actually happens. There's this term in rowing, I've become an expert on rowing because I listened to this book, you know. Uh, but they talk about this, this term called swing. You remember this, those of you that have read it? This is what it says in the book about that phenomenon. The author writes, there is a thing that sometimes happens in rowing that is hard to achieve and hard to define. Many crews, even winning crews, never really find it. It's called swing. It only happens when all eight oarsmen are rowing in such perfect unison that no single action by any one is out of sync with those of all the others. Only then will the boat continue to run unchecked, fluidly and gracefully between the pools of the oars. Only then will it feel as if the boat is part of each of them, moving as if on its own. Only then does pain give way to exaltation. Rowing then becomes a kind of perfect language, poetry. That's what a good swing feels like. I've never rowed anything more sophisticated than a canoe. <laughs> but when I read something like that, it makes me want to go find some group of 40-something crew people and go out in the Ohio River and learn how to row because wouldn't that be amazing to be a part of something like that, to experience something like that? And I think there's something in us that, that longs for that. We long to be a part of something that just rises above ourselves. We're made to be caught up in a collective effort. We're made to be caught up in a, a love or, 
or maybe a combination of the two. We want to feel accepted by and be a part of a community, and we want to know that our community is doing something exceptional and meaningful. That's what we're made for. Maybe you've felt that at some point in your life, that sense of unity, uh, the kind where you, you feel loved and you feel like you're accepted and you feel like you're part of something great. When you have a, a deep bond with others and you work together in beautiful ways. Jesus, Jesus's prayer here helps us to see that such a community of love and significance is what we're made to be a part of through faith in Jesus. In fact, any other community that, that reflects these things, that reflects and, and fulfills this sort of longing for love and significance is just an echo of what God has made the church to be. And as we will see, the, the church's unity that leads to significance and love is actually a reflection of God himself. The church often stumbles and, and falters in its quest for unity. But there are moments, we've all felt it to some degree, there's moments when we find our swing. There's moments when suddenly the unity amongst us, it, it, it reflects the unity of, of God himself. And it becomes clear that the mission that we are on is the most important thing in the universe, so much so that the world stands up and takes notice of who we are. And that's a miracle. It's a miracle of God's grace, which is why Jesus asks his Father to bring it about, and why we too must pray for and pursue the supernatural unity that declares the mission and the love of God. Within this prayer for, for unity, Jesus gives us a picture of the kind of unity that he's talking about, and he also explains the purpose, or we could even say the results of this kind of unity. So I just want to think about those two things. First, the picture of this unity. The picture of this unity. It's a multifaceted picture, but at its core, Jesus says that our unity should be divine. In other words, it should look like the unity of God himself. Back in verse 11 of this same chapter, Jesus prays that the disciples would be unified, and he says there that they may be one even as we are one. And here he expands on this idea, revealing that the unity that the church is called to is one that reflects the divine unity and is even caught up in that unity. As we think about the fact that our unity is to be a picture of God himself, notice in verse 21 that, that this is a unity that reflects the divine unity. It's a unity that reflects the divine unity. You see verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's those words, I in you and you and me that communicate that we are to reflect the divine unity in our unity. This is a statement about the Trinity and specifically about the relationship between the Father and the Son. The Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son. Now I'm going to give you an illustration of the Trinity that breaks down at some point, okay? Because as all illustrations of the Trinity do. But it reminds me in some ways of a Venn diagram where these two circles intersect, where they're, they're independent of each other and yet they are in one another. The, the Father is in the Son and the, the Son is, is in the Father. There's this independence, but there's a mutual inness that is a part of this unity. Again, I know that breaks down, but maybe that picture would help you to see in part what he's saying here. And if we're to reflect the divine unity of God, then we need, to, we need to ask a question. We need to ask, how are the Father and the Son in one another? 
Well, it can't be physical. It can't be a physical because God is spirit, right? So he's not saying that there's some sort of physical inness that is happening within the Godhead. Rather, we might highlight some things. We might highlight that the Father and the Son are united in their purpose. They're united in their mission. They are one in what they want to do. We've seen this throughout John's gospel. We, we've been reminded of the, the plan of salvation that God determined before time began. This, this plan that was coming to fruition in the hour that Jesus was now entering into. It was not just the Father's plan, and it wasn't just the Son's plan. They were united in that plan. Maybe you've been a part of a group project at school or a team effort at work. And in that group project or that team effort, you find that there's absolutely no consensus about what you're supposed to do or who's supposed to do what. You never get to the place where you're working together, actually. Or, or maybe you've been on a sports team and you come up with the strategy and then some other people on the same team come up with a different strategy and suddenly you've got two or three strategies running on the, on the field. One person wants to do one thing and someone else wants to do something else and there is no unity, there's no purpose, there's, there's no mission. The Father and the Son are not like that. The Father and the Son are united completely in their mission of salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus and the spread of their kingdom through the sending of the Spirit. The, the Son did not come to earth reluctantly. The Father was not upset when the Son was incarnated and, and came to die for us. No, they were united in that. And as we, we will see, they invite us to be joined together and joined with them in continuing that same mission. Beyond this unity of purpose and mission, John has also highlighted the unity between the Father and the Son that's expressed in love. They're united in love. In verses 24 and 25, as Jesus talks about the future glory of his kingdom, he speaks of the Father's love for him. Look at verses 24 and 25. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. I'm sorry, 25 and 26. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Elsewhere, we read about Jesus' love for the Father. So their, their unity is not a stale or a sterile kind of unity. It's not like a couple business partners that don't really like each other, but they work together because they've got some sort of a shared vision or they just want to make money. No, the Father and the Son are united in their purpose, but they're also united in their love for one another. Therefore, as we think about our own unity, if it's to reflect the divine unity, then there must be love present among us. We can't simply be united in our purpose. We can't simply have a, a shared goal in mind. No, we need to have that shared goal to reflect the unity of the, of the Godhead. But we also must love one another as the Father and the Son love each other. Of course, Jesus has made this call to love clear, hasn't he? It's that core command of, of the Upper Room Discourse back in John 13, that the disciples, that we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. And so, brothers and sisters, if we are to be united, then we must learn how to love one another. Our love is the basis of our unity, and as we actively seek to love one another more and more, our, our love also strengthens 
our unity. It pulls us even closer together. So a simple question of application here in the middle of the sermon is, how can we, this week, foster unity in the body of Christ by sacrificially loving each other? How can we grow in unity this week as we love one another? What small act or large act of love can you and I do from prayer for another person to preparing a meal for a family to watching someone's children to running an errand and so much more? What can we do that would show love? I believe that this church loves one another. I think so often, though, our practical expressions of love, they, they show up in our, in our mind and in our ideas, and sometimes they don't get into our hands and our feet. And so let me encourage you to say, we love one another, and if we are going to grow in unity, then we need to act on our love in practical ways. These acts of love build a unity, a unity that, that looks like God himself. We see this as the, as we see that as the, the picture of divine unity expands in, in verse 23, and we see that this is not only a unity that reflects the divine unity, but could we say it's a unity that's, that's caught up into the divine unity? I know that's kind of saying the same thing, but it's a unity that reflects the divine unity, but it's also a unity that's caught up into the divine unity. He says that it's not only seen in the fact that the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, but that verse 21, that they may also be in us. And and verse 23, Jesus says, um, verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. I in them and you in me. So the, the Son is in the Father, but the Son is also in we who believe in Christ. He's in the Father and he is he is in us. I have, don't completely understand this. <laughs> He's, he is in the Father and he is in us, but I think in some ways it's, it's expressed in the sending and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You might object to that because the Spirit is not the Son, and it says, Jesus says, I will be in them. Okay, but give me a better option. <laughs> no, but I think the, the Spirit is Jesus' spirit, isn't it? It is the spirit of Jesus, and the spirit comes and indwells us. They are distinct, and yet they are one. However we think about it, we, 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 gotta, we see that, that Christ is in us. Maybe even we go with that poor illustration of the Venn diagram, but we realize that somehow we're actually in that, that, that the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and and we are in the Son. The Son is in us. We're inserted into this. Not that we become members of the Trinity, but that God joins himself to us. God is in us. And if that's true, then that becomes our core identity, doesn't it? That we are owned by God and God is in us. If we trust it in Christ, if we have put our faith and our hope in him, then we are people for whom Christ is in us. We are in Christ. We are children of the Father. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And if that is our core identity as individuals, then it unites us to everyone else who shares that same identity. You know, we all have things that define us. Maybe it's the sports team that we root for or the kind of job we have. Maybe it's a a band or a book series that we love or a hobby that we enjoy. And when we find other people who share that same thing with us, we feel a a connection with them. 
We've said before that C.S. Lewis says that friendship is born the moment that we say, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. <laughs> and that happens in our lives. We see, uh, Jordan sees someone wearing an Ohio State shirt and he says, hey, you're an Ohio State fan. It doesn't matter who they are, Jordan and this person are instantly friends. Or if you hang around uh, Trevor and Joshua, you'll find out they're both computer programmers and they talk a whole different language. Um, Maybe you speak a different language. Uh, You speak French or you speak Tagalog or you speak Spanish and there's a bond there. Maybe you like Pokemon and there's a bond that forms over Pokemon. What, you like Pokemon too? Or you like my favorite TV show? Or you listen to Wolfpack? You too? And there's a bond that happens for these things that define us. But isn't there something much deeper? Isn't there something even eternal that's born the moment that we find out that someone is also a child of God? That they too are indwelt by Christ, that they are a follower of Jesus, that that the Spirit is in them. We suddenly realize that we are connected to them in a deep and a spiritual way. And in fact, whatever else may have divided us starts to fade to the background. Why? Well, because we realize that we're family. We realize that we're connected in a way that goes deeper than anything else we have ever experienced. Sure, there's important distinctions. There's differences amongst denominations. There's differences amongst streams of Christianity. That's another sermon for another time. The the focus here, though, is that those who have truly found life in Christ, even in the midst of those differences, we are united. We are one in Christ. Our unity then reflects the divine unity, specifically in the ways that the Father and the Son are united in purpose and in love. We're caught up into the unity of God himself such that it becomes the most important thing about us, and it unites us to one another and to everyone else who is truly in Christ. And when we begin to see the the picture of this unity clearly, the purpose of this unity starts to also become clear. We are united to a God whose unity is found in his joint mission and in his deep love. And so we find the purpose of our unity is borne out in those same ways. So think then on the purpose of this unity. We move from the picture of this unity to the purpose of this unity. You probably saw the clearest purpose as we read through those, that passage. It stands out, and it's this. It's to confirm the truth of God's mission. We are unified for a purpose, and part of the purpose is to confirm the truth of God's mission. In other words, to, to show that Jesus really came, the truth of that. It, it's easy to spot. Look in verse 21. That they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's in verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. Remember how the Pharisees were always saying, no, you're not from God. You're not from God. And Jesus is here saying when you are unified, people cannot argue with the fact that I have actually come. Jesus is clear in earlier verses that he's not praying for the world, but we see here that his prayers for the disciples and for us are connected to the world. Yes, there is a a joy and a blessing in our unity that we experience, but the emphasis here is that the unity of Christians in the midst of all their apparent differences 
says to the world that Jesus has truly come. When we are unified, the world looks at us and says, Jesus must have come into the world. If those people are unified, if they're together in unity, in love, in purpose, wow, God must have come from heaven to make that possible. In his book, The Mark of a Christian, Francis Schaeffer calls this the final apologetic. It's the final apologetic. The unity of the church is the final apologetic. He poignantly writes this, We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. But why unity? Why does unity affirm the truth of the gospel? I wonder if it could be what we talked about earlier, namely that there's this desire within us to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. There's a desire to be in a community that's united in love and on mission, a desire that's put in us by God himself. We see this all around us. Humanity is ever trying to form this kind of unity and always ultimately failing. And sadly, what's interesting is that many in the church have sought unity in the same places that the world does instead of the unity that comes in the body of Christ. Churches themselves can become defined by other things that they're united around other than Jesus. We start to sell our identity as Christians and we find identity in other things. We find identity in, in whether we're men or women. We find identity in whether we are American or some other nationality, whether we are Republicans or Democrats. We find our identity in whether we are black or white or some other race. We find identity in whether we are urbanites or, or country folk. That's not where our identity lies, though, ultimately. ultimately. Paul is, is clear in Ephesians 2 that Jesus broke down all of those walls of division that are founded on identities outside of Christ, and he made one new man in Christ, where Christ is the head. And, and it's, it's this that the world is desperately looking, looking for. In the midst of our divided culture, they want to see and they want to be a part of a group of people that are truly united, even in the midst of diversity. A group of people who love each other and are working towards a kingdom that will never fade. That kind of community speaks not only of something that their hearts are longing for, but as we see, that kind of community actually reveals who God is and reveals the relationship that we have all been made for. So when Jesus prays that we would be one, it's for our joy, but it's also so that the world would finally believe that he has actually come to bring salvation. Our unity is meant to confirm the truth of God's mission. Along the same lines, our unity, secondly, is meant to testify to the reality of God's love. Our unity, our love for one another, testifies to the reality of God's love. Verse 23 says that the love Christians have for one another displays the love of God. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and that the world may know that you, that, and that you love them even as you loved me. Now we gotta do a little work here on that them because who does the them refer to? Look at it again, verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and that the world may know that you loved 
them. Now, is the them the world? Or is the them disciples and followers of Jesus? I believe it's the latter, namely that when we are unified as Christians, the world realizes that we are unified because we've been truly loved by God, that we've been caught up into the divine love itself, such that God loves us as he has loved the Son. I think verses 25 and 26 sort of affirm that interpretation. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The love is, is, is specifically towards those who have trusted in Christ. And so when we are unified, we testify to the reality of God's love. Love is something that everybody longs for, isn't it? There's books, there's movies, there's reality TV shows that are all about finding true love. And they have to be popular in some way because people long for this. And they want to witness it. They want to see what true love or some form of true love, what it looks like. Something we all long for. But no human relationship is able to satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. And so the church, when we walk in unity, the church is actually able to reveal the love of God that we are all longing for. Way better than any Hallmark movie and way better than any reality TV show. The church shows us what love really looks like. The, the unified church testifies to the love that God has for each believer so that the world looks at us and they say, oh, that's the love that I want. It's in that body of believers. And that's why division and hatred within the church is so ugly. When, as Paul says to the Galatians, we bite and devour one another, we fail to declare the love of God to a watching world. This is what they say to them, they, themselves. They say, I want to be loved so badly. I long to be loved and to be accepted. But there's no way I'm going to find that kind of love in the church. Uh, they can't even get along with the people that are there now. How, how am I going to show up there and they're actually going to love me? Our response to that reality must be the same as Jesus's, which is to pray. To pray for and pursue the supernatural unity that declares the mission and the love of God. And to realize that when we bite and devour one another, when we are divided from one another, and when hatred grows in the church, it tells the world, it, it doesn't exemplify the reality of God's love to the world in the way that we are called to do and that Jesus has prayed for. I think part of pursuing this kind of loving unity is found in laying down our lives and our rights and our pride and service to others. That's what Jesus talks about when he tells us to love one another as he has loved us. And as I've been thinking about this prayer in John 17, as it relates to the other prayer of Jesus before he dies, the prayer in the garden, I've tried to understand what, how, how might these work together. How, they're prayed obviously around the same time. And we know that the, the core of Jesus' prayer there in the garden is, Father, not my will but yours be done. I wonder if that's the, the way these two prayers could intersect. Could, could part of the answer be that the fact that for Jesus to make the kind of unity possible that he's calling us to, to make the kind of love possible that he wants to, to show us, he has to lay down his rights, his comforts, 
and follow the will of the Father all the way to the cross. And if we desire to pursue this kind of unity and to show this kind of love, a love that is part of the new commandment to love others as Christ has loved us, then it's going to mean that we constantly say to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. It's not about me, Lord. It's about you and your glory, and your glory is seen as I love those around me. We're going to be applying passages like 1 Corinthians 13 to the life of the church and realizing that we always need to be saying, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. And like Jesus, though this path is going to lead to the cross, we will find those sacrifices often bring our deepest joys. That when we say, not my will, but yours be done, and lay down our lives in service to others, we find our greatest joy because we long above all things for the glory of the Father. And such love reveals his glory to the world. I think glory is what I would say is the third and final purpose of this unity. The purpose of this unity is that we might see the glory of God. The purpose of this unity is that we might see the glory of God. We see glory in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. We also see it in verse 24. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you see what Jesus is praying for us? Praise that we would see his glory. Praise that we would see the fullness of his majesty. I think this prayer would, would seem to be for something that is still to come and that Jesus is, is praying for those who believe in him to see the fullness of his glory in the new kingdom when he returns to take us to himself. And while this does not seem to be directly tied to our unity, it's our union with Christ that allows us to have the hope of seeing his glory and our union with Christ unites us to one another. In fact, could it be that the union of of the church in mission and in love, attesting to the, the fact that Jesus has truly come and that he has deeply loved us, that it somehow brings some of that heavenly glory to the earth here and now. Could, could the unity of the church actually be an answer to the prayer that Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, as it will be in heaven when we are perfectly united. When we ask, God, let your kingdom come on earth now, in some ways, what are we praying for? God, make us unified in purpose and love so that we look like we will look like in heaven, so that we look the way that we will throughout all eternity, throughout all eternity being perfectly united. Remember, Jesus is, is departing. Jesus is leaving He's returning to the Father, and so he's been telling us how to follow him in his absence. The other thing that's actually happening here is that when Jesus leaves, when he ascends to heaven, there is no longer an incarnate, visible display of the glory of God on earth. When he leaves, the incarnate, visible display of the God's glory on earth is gone. Or is it? Does it actually leave? Because what is the church? What's Paul's favorite illustration of the church? The body 
of Christ. The body of Christ on this earth. We are a visible display of Jesus to the world. How do we show him though? How do we display Christ? He says it here. We do it through our unity. We show who Jesus is when we are united. When we are united to one another in Jesus' name, we show the world what God looks like. We reveal the truth of his mission to save all who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ. We reveal that in Christ alone we will find the love that our hearts are longing for. And we reveal the very glory of God himself that we have seen in Jesus and that we will one day see in the new kingdom. Can you believe that? That our unity is somehow a reflection of the glory of God here on earth? That the church can be the body of Christ showing forth who he is when we are united in love and in purpose? It's an amazing privilege. It's one that we should pray for and pursue, isn't it? Until we see him until his kingdom does come on earth and we are fully united, we must pray. We must pray for and pursue the supernatural unity that declares the mission and the love of God. Because our job right now is not simply to behold the glory of God in Christ. We are also to display it. We are to show it. And we do that in the unity and love that is ours because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. So may he give us that desire. May he give us the strength to do that, all to the praise of his glory. Would you join me in a moment of silence? And then I will pray for us and we will sing our closing song. Father, by your strength, through your spirit, because of the blood of Christ, would you make us perfectly one? Would you help us to see that we are in you through faith in Christ? And if we are in you, then we are united to everyone else who is also in you. Or that we are united in this purpose of spreading your gospel and declaring your glory. We are united in the love that we have for one another because we are loved by you. Father, help us to declare the reality that you truly have come through our unity. Would you make it so supernatural that people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, that people from every socioeconomic background, that every, uh, everything that would divide us falls and, and fades to the background because we are united in you and that the world would look at us and, and see who you are and believe that Jesus has come and know that they can be loved by you and even behold the, the glory of heaven itself in our company. Lord, we recognize we are just one church and yet you can do that in and through us. So would you unite us would you help us to walk in unity and would you help us to, as a, as a worldwide church, to show forth the beauty of what you have done for us through Christ. We ask all this in his name. Amen.